0: It's interesting for me, because pitching in game 162 last year, that wasn't a playoff game, but it almost made me a little more aware as to where to miss to certain hitters because I knew the bullpen was backing me up that day. So in the playoffs, you see a lot of these teams go to the bullpen really quickly. And I think as a starter, your biggest job is just to put up zeros at that point. It doesn't matter. How deep you go, you need to put up zeros.
1: Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle. Welcome you into episode 15 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's a podcast where five-time World Series champion and Scion Award winner David Cohn, statistical maven James Smythe, and myself, we discuss the art of pitching each and every week. And on this week's episode, David, we have a pitcher that has had experienced a whole lot of adversity in his career on and off the field. And... He's coming off a season where he completely overhauled his mechanics on the mound.
2: He really did. And not only did he overhaul his mechanics in the offseason, leading into the beginning of the season, but in the middle of the season, he was really struggling. We talk about a bottoming out start that he had ready. He had knocked on the first inning in Philadelphia this year in the middle of the season. And it looked like you know, he was lost and he went back to the drawing board and he got it all back together again, got a better mix of pitches got into a pitching mode sooner in the games and Jamison Tyone to me finished on such a strong note. And obviously, you know, he's had off season surgery on his ankle, but is doing very well. We'll catch up on that, but a really smart guy, a guy that I think Yankee fans should be pretty excited about seeing again next year when he's fully healthy, because he really was in the middle of that rotation, a real mainstay and a real solidifier for everybody. I think.
1: Yeah. We, we touch on, two strike mentality because that was something that he himself went out of his way to say hey I'm getting beaten a lot of my mistakes are coming with two strikes I I remember him casually kind of slipping that into a lot of the post-game zooms after Yankee games in in 2021 he's like I probably lead the the league in giving up two strike hits and James some of those stats they they ring true a little bit with Tyone during certain points of the season
3: Right. And we and we touch on it in the interview uh, early on the first half of the season, 235 batting average against with two strikes. But then after retooling things, 147 the rest of the way and in, in an area where the league average is 193 uh, batting average with two strikes. So he really overhauled things there. And it was great to, to listen to him kind of break it down that way.
1: And We also touched a lot on kind of living the, the New York City life while he's rehabbing from. His ankle injury, uh, you know, kind of has a hole in his tendon in his ankle. We we'll get the 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 proper term here. Let me let me pull that up. He he suffered a torn longest tendon in his ankle. It's a, a very rare injury, for, especially for a, a pitcher. So his rehab's going well, and he he, he kind of updates us on that rehab, how it's going with the lockout currently in place. And guys, with the lockout going on, we kind of had a, a lot of off the beaten path baseball news come up maybe not even on this continent we're going to touch on some of that as well we'll get into uh, this week in pitching history but we start with the opener like we do each and every episode and David this is a space space uh, usually reserved for you you kind of let us know what's on your mind but James I think we need to change it up this week because David was in the news himself here he became one of the big news topics of the offseason David Cohn one of the new baseball voices of Sunday Night Baseball. How's that sound, David? Sounds pretty good. You know, it's
2: a, it's, a, it's one of the big seats of baseball, right? I mean, if you can't call the World Series, uh, then you want to be on Sunday Night Baseball. And in some ways, you know, that is such an exclusive night uh, to be able to be in that booth and call that game and you know, see every other team uh, and travel around, and be able to see both leagues and some of the best teams in the game. Uh, you know, Eduardo Perez and Carl Ravitch is going to be a play-by-play guy. I'm really honored. I'm really looking forward to it. Still going to have a big presence on Yes, on the Yes Network. Still going to do, you know, at least 50 games. Maybe try to sneak in a few more if we can. Uh, we're still kind of hashing that out. But, yes, I am really stoked about getting a chance to sit in that seat. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, that's a job everybody who's in in our business wants. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones to be able, that, that's going to be able to get to sit in that seat and call those games on Sunday night.
1: You mentioned some of the details. What excites you the most about the assignment?
2: Well, obviously the exclusivity of it, being on a, you know, on a national telecast, to be able to broaden your scope a little bit and cover more teams and, and see both sides of the coin in terms of national and American League a little bit more. And I get to talk and meet uh, different players around the league. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a baseball lifer at this point. I signed out of high school back in 1981. I spent four, almost five, five years in the minor leagues, 17 years in the big leagues, got into broadcasting after my career. I'm pretty lucky that I've carved out a second career. So yeah, to finally you know, reach that kind of level of while wow, somebody wants you to be on a national telecast, that, that feels pretty good. I feel, you know, pretty lucky. And uh, you know, it feels really good to be able to have that opportunity and uh, it's uh, it seems like a next career step. So, uh, you know, that you get the butterflies back getting that itch back again and, that's hard to find after you've been a ball player. After you pitch in a World Series, it's hard to find that juice again. And you know, this kind of gives it to me. You know, and doing, doing the Yes games gave it to me, but this is kind of next level stuff.
3: Well, congrats, Coney. Well deserved. And now, national baseball fans can, you know, we, Yankee fans in in the New York area watching on Yes have been a little spoiled. Uh, now, uh, fans all around the country can can uh, can listen to Coney on Sunday nights. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun.
1: I know Eduardo Perez does a terrific job on ESPN already. He's also on MLB network radio on Sirius XM. And that's where I've listened to him the most. And I I just associate Carl Ravitch as the guy in terms of baseball tonight on ESPN. That's the show you grew up on because, uh, you know, before MLB network came along, I mean, we, we, James, you and I, when we were growing up, there was no MLB network, like baseball tonight was was baseball tonight show for baseball and, and Carl Ravitch, is one of the the main pilots for that show. Are are you familiar, David, with with each of those guys in terms of their their work background? Have have you been able to get to know them over the years, or is this something where you guys are going to uh, be be meeting essentially for the first time, getting your feet wet together?
2: No, we talked and met before, definitely. I mean, Carl obviously goes back thirty years at ESPN, one of the early early guys there that uh, started covering baseball and. Uh, Eduardo Perez and I played against each other you know we competed against each other so uh there's going to be that pitcher hitter dynamic that although Neil and I try to feature on the Yes Network and you know you know for me it's um it's such a unique opportunity to uh to uh you know work with guys like that and carve out our own niche you know because not too many people have had that seat I mean you think about Joe Morgan and and John Miller were there for a long time so uh you know, Carl Ravitch is only the fourth play-by-play guy in the history of Sunday Night Baseball. But even dating myself further, you know, you guys mentioned about the, the 90s and baseball tonight, pre-MLB days. For me, you know, when I was in high school, it was the late 70s. You know, you're thinking 78, 79, 1980. That's when ESPN first came out. And I'm a sophomore in high school. And, Dan, maybe you can relate to this, our producer, Dan Rourke. It's like – I can make a living in sports. They're, they're going to have a station that's going to show sports 24 hours a day. That, that can never work. Maybe it can work. Sports center, nothing but highlights showing sporting events. Wow. That's what I want to do. So, you know, it certainly had an influence on me when I was a kid in high school thinking about, man, can I pitch? Am I good enough to play? Not knowing uh, if I could make it as a player. But if I didn't, you know, there's a there's a way to make your living in sports. And, uh, boy, that, that's pretty exciting when, you, when, you, when you're thinking about it when you're 15, 16 years old. All
1: right. Do you have one memory as a player on Sunday Night Baseball that comes to mind?
2: Uh, yes, uh, there was. Uh, actually, I think uh, the Sunday Night Baseball game, uh, uh, Musina's near-perfect game at Fenway Park uh, was me. And Musina I was pitching for the Red Sox against Musina. And I threw eight innings of shutout baseball. So theoretically, you know, you have, to, you have to have the lead to get credit with a perfect game. So it was zero to zero going into the ninth inning. If I would have thrown a goose egg up in the ninth, and a theoretically could have thrown a perfect game through nine innings, it wouldn't have counted because it would have been zero to zero after nine. I ended up giving up an unearned run in the top of the ninth and set Usina up for, for perfection. And it was two outs, two strikes. Carl Everett broke up his perfect game. He was one pitch away. Mike Messina's game, that was probably one of the best ESPN Sunday night games. It's actually kind of a different game because they experimented with the home camera. It was the high home camera directly behind home plate, which gave you a different view of the game. It was one of the only games they used it. There was only a couple of games that I think the ESPN tried that particular center field camera angle. So it's a little bit different if you can go back and see the highlights of that game. But that was one of the best games at Fenway Park ever. I mean, we've seen them near perfecto on Sunday night.
3: September second, two thousand one, at Fenway, and uh, Coney, eight and a third, six hits, one run unearned, three walks, and eight Ks. And uh, considering the ups and downs you had in two thousand, landing in Boston, two thousand one, that was that was like it uh, was almost like Coney's last stand. Uh, you know, having a, a big game like that, and uh, the run uh, scored after a Lumerlone error at second base, and then Enrique Wilson uh, doubled down the line to bring in the game's only run. And like uh, Coney mentioned, Mussina uh, one strike away from perfection. And I don't know about you guys. I love that camera angle straight over. You see it a lot in St. Louis now too, where it's looking straight down and you get a really good sense of um, you get a better sense of the, the break and and the movement on
2: pitches. Yeah. The center field camera matters. The perception to your right, you think the ball moved or that was a strike. It's a big, big deal where the center, center field camera is positioned in terms of your perception at home watching on where the pitch was, where the strike zone is, where the location was.
1: Yeah, I wonder why that went away. I mean, it, it was almost here as – you know, it went away as quickly as it, as it came. It, it was only a couple of seasons, but you distinctly remember there was a time in the aughts where, you know, for a season or two, that was it. That was the angle. And I, I remember there being a big split in people preferring the – normal way or or the high set
2: yeah even still today and the infrastructure of each individual ballpark is different so it's hard to to match up the perfect angle from ballpark to ballpark uh, some ballparks don't you know there's no space for that, that sort of a camera or, or there's seats there or there's uh, just not the infrastructure in place to be able to put a camera there yeah
1: all right we had a chance to talk with James and Tyone Right-hander for the New York Yankees just turned 30 years of age and just completed his first season as a Yankee. He was drafted second overall back in 2010 by the Pirates, kind of famously in between Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. And like I said, just finished his first season with the Yankees. Kind of experienced a, a real postseason race, pitching in meaningful games for the first time in his career. He kind of touched on that, but this is a guy who puts up some big strikeout numbers. He's a prime example of, of the high four seam fastball approach to negate the, the hitter's launch angle that we've been seeing the last handful of years. And he is taking full advantage of the New York City experience year round. This is a Texas kid. And James, it's pretty cold out right now. Here's, he's here in New York and experiencing a New York City winter for the first time. I know David's down in Florida, but man, it's pretty cold where we're at here in the New York tri-state area. We have a solution though, right? Yeah. Uh,
3: I want to take a second to tell you all we have a bunch of new products that just dropped on the John Boy Media Store. Go to John Boy Essentials Collections at shop.johnboymedia.com and check out the new shirts, long sleeves, sweaters, and much more. If you're looking to get something to rock back to school or get back to work, we got you. Uh, the best part, we have a special discount for Towing the Slab listeners. Go to shopjohnboymedia.com and use this code SLAB, toe in the Slab, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. So that's shop.johnboymedia.com. Click on the John Boy Essentials Collection and use the code SLAB at checkout for 10% of your entire order. I got to admit, I'm not a coffee drinker. And it was embarrassing to admit that to Jameson Tyone. But I did see we have a pretty sharp new mug uh, in the uh, in the John Boy Media Store with the fresh toe-in-the-slab logo. So if you're into mugs, check it out. And if you're into other stuff, check that out too. It's a
1: must-have. you got to have that toe-in-the-slab mug, definitely. Yeah, you can pretty much put anything you want in the mug. It doesn't have to be restricted to coffee. So, oh, you know, wink, wink there. And James, I'm not too far uh, – you know, ahead of you here, I, I didn't want to mention to Jameson that I consumed coffee via Keurig, so I kind of had a, a K cup, and, and and that was it. I feel like that's you know, a no no in in Jameson Tyone's eyes, so we didn't we didn't go there. But those so mugs true. are are very sharp. I'm I'm not into talking smack here, but guys, I'm gonna say that I will put the towing the slab color scheme up against any other. John Boy Media podcast that's out there today. So if you want that splashy, awesome looking towing the slab color scheme mug, enter slab uh, the the promo slab and you you know you get ten percent off. Also, the, there are like these fuzzy sweatshirts, the fuzzy hoodies that that are on the shop. They are the warmest, coziest sweatshirts I may have ever purchased. It', it amazing. It's, it has the JM logo. It's very subtle logo. I'm kind of into, I'm not a big logo guy, but these sweatshirts, the, the fuzziness just, you know, it screams winter comfort and it's, it's, it's a great get there. So like James said, promo code slab, check out 10% at a uh, shop.johnboymedia.com. All right, Jamison Tyone, this week's guest here on Tone in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Jameson, thanks so much for joining us here this week. And we know that you are one of the very few Yankees who actually stayed behind and live in New York city during the off season this winter. And I know you're doing your, your ankle rehab here, but if you weren't living here in the off season, you'd be back in Texas near Houston, where where you're originally from. So I want to know here, as we take a look at the temperature outside, in New York City around 25 degrees or so what is your uh, first impression of New York City in the wintertime man
0: yeah well the ankle rehab definitely makes me a little nervous to go outside when it's snowing or icy so we just got you know that snowfall the other day you know there's some ice on the ground and stuff so I'm being real cautious um, you know I'm wearing my ankle brace around and stuff whereas normally I wouldn't be but I'm loving it um, you know we, me and my girlfriend decided. You know, my contract only runs a certain amount of time in New York. Like only a couple of years are guaranteed, so might as well get the full experience and and live it up and enjoy it while we're here.
1: We always hear for players that come through New York, play for the Yankees or the Mets. A lot of the young guys they take in that Manhattan experience. They live in Manhattan, and then maybe they they migrate up north, Westchester County, White Plains, that area. David, when, when you were playing for both the Mets and the Yankees, were you always a Manhattan guy?
2: I was, you know, in the summertime, maybe I, you know, eventually I would, you know, rent a house just to have a pool, maybe just to break it up a bit. But I was a city guy. I learned in Jameson, you were well schooled on that because there's so much the city has to offer and you know, not only services, but, you know, an easy commute to Yankee Stadium. And you really, you're soaking up the culture and there's no city like it, you know, anywhere in, in the world, in my opinion. So yeah, I think you did it right. I, I still have a presence in New York City. I mean, I'm a, I am a kid from Kansas City. I'd never been to New York before I got there. And, I, and that was 35 years ago and never left. So I've, I've kept that presence in the city all these years.
0: I think the city can intimidate some people, but I feel like we embraced it from from the get-go and um, that's pretty show of you to rent a house up, up there with, with a pool in the summer. But uh, definitely, if you're friends with the guys on the team, they'll do barbecues and stuff, their houses up there and stuff.
1: Now, it's no secret. And if you're watching this on, on the YouTube stream, you just saw Jameson take a big gulp of, of coffee here. We know you are a coffee aficionado. But th- there's a difference, I think, between being a coffee fan and a consumer of coffee. Like, how much coffee do you consume in a single day?
0: Not as much as you would think, probably. Like I definitely wake up with a cup or two, and then usually have one in the afternoon. So I average anywhere from like two to three in season. That number can pick up a little bit. Um, I'll usually have like two before heading to the field, and then I'll get bored, you know, right before the game, and have some dead time, and I'll just start making pour overs for guys and stuff. But not as much as you would think. Like I've averaged two and a half. That's that's what we'll set the over under at. Right out of your locker, though, right?
2: You got it all. You got the setup right in the locker.
0: Yeah, whenever we had to distance our lockers uh, because of COVID early in the season, I had an open locker next to me, and that was like a full-on coffee shop. Like I had a scale. I had a kettle. I had the pour-over set up a grinder. Um, It was nice, and then whenever we put everyone back together, I just set up shop in Robbie Kakuza's office there, the head clubby, and uh, he was kind enough to to let me make pour-overs in his office, but I had to pay him with a cup every time I went in there to make one
1: david and, and james i feel like we should know this about one another like how much coffee do you guys consume each day
2: james
3: yeah you first i <laughs> i i have to bite the bullet here and admit i am not a coffee drinker oh, okay all right mm. sorry i'm
2: kind of the same you know a couple in the morning and then uh in the afternoon a little jolt in the afternoon so yeah i mean yeah it's uh you know, once you're in, once you get that feel and that taste for it, the acquired taste and it grows from there. That's why I admire Jameson so much and take it to the next level. i a real connoisseur. I'm still on Nespresso. So I, I have a ways to go in my education. I'm sure look at him scoffing already at that. So.
0: No, no, right? no. It's all good. <laughs> I got yeah. it. It's all good. It's I got like ways to go. wine or <laughs> bourbon, you know, people, you can tell tasting notes and stuff. So the more I, the more I drink and the more I explore, the more I learn about it and stuff. So it really started out, um, we had a Korean guy in Pittsburgh, Jung Ho Gong, and his translator was like insane with the pour overs. And I, was, I could really start tasting a difference. So I would just kind of follow him around and be like, hey, before the game, do you mind, you know, maybe showing me a tip or two? And he had like a notebook just full of notes, tasting notes, temperatures he was brewing coffee at. Like he was really next level. So he kind of took me under his, his coffee wing and, and showed me the way. And now I, I feel like I've gotten a
1: bunch of guys hooked on it. He is, you know, forgive me. For, for I guess being ignorant here is, is there such a thing as like Korean coffee?
0: I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if there's an exact type or not. I've never seen a bean from there, but this guy, I mean, he was next level with it.
1: Okay. Well, we recently saw you post a story on Instagram. You got back on the mound for the first time this offseason, following the rehab from ankle surgery. So how many, how many throwing sessions have you had here? What is, uh, what is the rehab going, uh, looking like right now overall?
0: Yeah, so um, I was able to kind of get creative with like the plyo balls. So I was throwing weighted balls kind of throughout this whole process just to keep the arm kind of in shape, trying to find ways to just keep the arm and shoulder strong, um, even though I couldn't like do a classic stride and push off or anything like that. Um, so I've actually only thrown normally, probably today was probably like my eighth time or something like that. Um, whereas in years past, I would usually start a throwing program around like Thanksgiving time. Um, but by being able to stay on top of so many other things and bring like hyper focus to my arm care, I actually feel like I'm right where I need to be. I feel better than I thought I would be, uh, feeling, you know, picking up a ball this late in the off season um so I'm throwing like three to four times a week right now at my PT facility and it feels really great actually like I don't feel the ankle at all obviously I'm not wearing cleats yet I'm not you know pushing off or throwing 95 or anything but super happy with where I'm at because last time I threw towards the end of the year I felt it pretty pretty frequently um so it's nice to just be pain-free again it's kind of just relieving
2: you know Jameson we've, we've seen you evolve I mean, I, you know, I. I love the way you made adjustments from your Pittsburgh days, watching you there and the power sinker days to coming over here and completely changing, you know, your arm swing, shortening things up, not easy things to do, uh, grip it a different way more often, start throwing more four seamers. And it seemed like in the middle of the year, you kind of evolved again a little bit and started getting back into a, a little better mix of all your pitches. So can you, can you take me through that a little bit? And how tough is that for yeah. you to make those adjustments?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So When I got hurt, when I hurt my elbow for the second time, I really just felt like I was at a crossroads. Like I wasn't a prospect anymore. I wasn't super young. I had had these arm problems. I hadn't missed really any starts in the big leagues because of arm trouble um, up to that point. But my elbow was kind of bothering me. My whole big league career, I was maybe taking off throwing sessions or throwing light bullpens. I wasn't able to get my work in on the side the way I wanted to. Um, so it had been something in the back of my mind, like, man, I see these guys shortening up their deliveries, cleaning up and becoming more efficient, but like people would think I'm crazy if I did that after my 2018 season that I had. So it was always in the back of my mind. And then when I got hurt, I was like, you know what? I think the time is now to just try to reinvent myself. If I can't stay healthy, it doesn't matter how talented I am or anything like your value is by being on the field and pitching innings. So, um, yeah, it was it honestly made my, my rehab from Tommy John surgery fun because I was just learning so much and evolving and, you know, I was always finding a new drill to do. I was trying to video all my work just to kind of get feedback for where I was. Um, but yeah, like you said, I was a sinker guy in Pittsburgh, didn't throw many four seams. Uh, and then this year started out, like obviously all four seams up breaking balls down uh, and then obviously the hitters get the same scattering report that I do. So they know what I'm trying to do. And it becomes kind of that cat and mouse game. And I just hit a point in the middle of the season where it was like, I'm just too good for this. I'm too good to feel like I'm just out there struggling and not always even struggling, but even my better starts just felt like a grind. like, I shouldn't have to grind like that. I should be able to mix and protect my pitches and, and have a little more deception, uh, make it tougher to game plan on me where you can't just hunt one pitch in one zone Um, so again, I found myself at a bit of a crossroads where it was like, I need to adjust and punch back because the hitters are punching, punching at me right now. Um, and you know, through the support of the Yankees staff and stuff, we had everything available to show me like, here's the scattering report the hitters are getting on you. Here's where they're kind of keyholing and looking. Um, so here's some things we think could help. Um and then I was able to just go in and focus on those things in the bullpen. And it definitely like pitching just became, I don't want to say easier, it's never easy, but like the flow of the game just started happening where you can start reading swings and you can start reading foul balls. and Like the situation of the game kind of was dictating what I was throwing and where I was missing. And I just felt like I was pitching again instead of just throwing.
2: James, why don't you make us a little bit smarter? Tell us, tell us uh, what you, what you think about the the breakdown of Jameson last
3: year. Oh, um, he was uh, Jameson. You were fantastic after a little bit of a bumpy start. You've called your season up and down. But you had an AL pitcher of the month in July with a 1-1-6 ERA. There was a stretch, about a half a season's worth of starts, 12 starts, with a two five seven 7 ERA from about mid-June to the to the end of August, second in the AL and ERA behind Robbie Ray, who ended up who ended up leading it, gutting it out for the in when you come back in that game 162. Uh, you'd said you'd never pitched in a in a really meaningful game like that before and to come in with uh, with no runs in that one. And uh, after everything. You've been through two numbers, jump right out at everybody. 144 and a third innings, 29 starts, answering the bell. Garrett Cole missing time, Jordan Montgomery missing time. You really anchored that rotation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think as as a, a guy who's been in the big leagues for a few years, like I would take a full season of I know nowadays, like teams will take less innings for a better ERA or whatever, but there's still something to be said about going out and taking the ball every fifth day and making your starts. And I take a lot of pride in that now because I've been a guy who's missed time. So, like the 29 starts and getting my inning count up there was really important to me just because I wanted to show that, you know, I can take the ball and I can be reliable every fifth day. But like you said there, like the up and down thing, that's, just not like me. Like I've taken a lot of pride in my career and being the guy who, you know what, I might not ever win an ERA title, but I can go out there and give you six innings with two or three runs every fifth day. My personality is pretty even keeled. Like, so this season being up and down was hard for me because I'm just not, I don't, I'm not used to riding the wave like that. I'm used to kind of just being the steady Eddie. Um, so that was difficult. Um, but, you know, sometimes like the results are right in front of your face and those are telling you whether you need to make
1: adjustments or not. Jameson, when you take a look at maybe some turning points during the 2021 season, I, I know you often referenced that start against the Phillies in Philadelphia, and I remember you saying in the post-game Zoom afterwards that you kind of needed to change things up, offer up a, a more variety of pitches, and I think that's when we kind of saw the increase of 2 seam fastballs, and it obviously led to great success in July. What is that balance like when you're adding more pitches into your approach and and figuring out like when to unleash more pitches yeah
0: yeah so I was falling into a trap where like I just felt I almost felt naked out there Where like it's no secret like my fastball up I'm a high spin rate guy at this point like it's no secret what I'm trying to do so you know oh oh an account if I get a swing and miss on a fastball up like I've already shown you my best weapon so When I get deeper in counts, like how am I supposed to get a guy out when he's already seen my best stuff? So I would go, oh oh, fastball up, swing and miss. Oh one, fastball up, foul ball, and that right there should have been telling me like, hey, he's starting to see it. He fouled it off. He's starting to time it up. He's making an adjustment. And then by the time I get to oh two, one two, like he knows when I'm going to try to throw him. And by that point, he's seen my best rip twice. Um, so guys were like more on time for the fastball up, and that's I feel like I gave up so many two strike two out hits, um, really on the same pitch where it's like banging my head constantly. Like, but that's kind of what it came down to. Is like if I could steal a strike early in account with a two seam, like even if it's a foul ball, I know that's not a sexy thing for like the analytics and stuff. But if I can steal a strike early in account without showing a hitter my best rip, like that's really important because that leaves me an opportunity maybe to like sneak a fastball up by someone. Versus trying to have to be perfect at the top every time.
2: You, you know, James, it's been a heck, a heck of a long time since I pitched in the big leagues. And I'm really curious. I'm a little jealous because I'm in some of the toys you guys get to play with nowadays. And can you tell me from your days in Pittsburgh and your evolution, you know, the pitching theories, uh, you know, how much the analytics department influences your day-to-day operation or your, prepare, you know, getting prepared for a start or, you know, uh, some of the differences that you've seen in the big leagues since you've been there and how you prepare, do you know your numbers? Do you you pay attention to your, your, your spin rate, your vertical horizontal movement, everything that's available to you? How much do you use that?
0: Um, So, I mean, I feel like just since I came up in the big leagues, like so much has changed. I haven't been up that long, but I feel like so much in baseball has changed in the last like five, six years where when I came up, like I shared a pitching staff with like Ryan Vogelsong, who had shared a staff with like older generation guys. So like, the work ethic, I, I saw him in the weight room just, like, crushing heavy weights in season, running all the time. Like, he was a worker. So, you know, you see that just even from the weight room perspective. Nowadays, it's more about, like, correctives and mobilities and moving properly and moving efficiently. Um, so, like, that's changed a lot. And then analytically, the game's changed so much. Um, definitely, New York has more access to certain things than Pittsburgh did. Pittsburgh was trying to catch up here in the past few years, um, but yeah, I mean, just overall, I think the game has changed so much. Some guys on the pitching staff are so hyper aware of every single number, uh, like Clay Holmes, who we added midseason. Like he's extremely smart analytically; like he knows so much about Rapsodo, TrackMan, like Edgetronic data, biomechanics, and then there's some guys who still do all of their scouting on their own and they watch video, like. Garrett, for example, like Garrett watches a lot of video just on his own. Like he likes to just sit down and take notes on his own. Um, Sure. He uses numbers and analytics, obviously, but he takes the initiative to do a lot of it on his own. Um, So you still see a a lot of everything. And then I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I use the numbers to support what I'm, you know, trying to see on video or I'll kind of, it's, it's like, for me, it's an open conversation with like the pitching coach, the catcher, the analytics department. Hey, I'm seeing this, or I'm thinking this. The numbers back up what I'm thinking, or, or feeling, or seeing.
2: Yeah, I, I think the question, the, the follow up to that is, uh, do you f- do you feel the, the power to push back? I mean, if, if there's diverging opinions, the analytics department says you need to throw this pitch more because of this number, and your pitching coach says this, and you think a third thing. Do you do you do you, have, do you feel that conflict, or do you feel the power to be able to to I guess have veto power on your own because you're on the mound, you have the ball in your hand.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was younger. And this is even without like the super presence of analytics. Like I definitely didn't feel the power, not to say I was like forced to do anything, but I just felt like they're putting something in front of me. I'm going to do whatever they say. And that goes for all aspects of my career. Like in the weight room, you hand me a workout. I'm just going to put my head down. I'm going to do it. And now I feel like, I think it just comes with maturity, maybe like growing up a little bit. I've also been a guy who's like had rehab multiple times. So I feel like I've taken some initiative over my career to where if I'm in the weight room and I'm not feeling right doing something like it's a conversation with the strength coach and the trainers and, you know, with the scouting report, like you said, you're the one throwing the ball and it's your numbers at the end of the year. And um, I just feel like, especially with New York, like everything's such a collaboration, like every department works together. So, you know, if Matt Blake tells me, here's what we're thinking. What are you think? Like, it's just an open conversation. They'll show me the, the numbers, the analytics, they'll print out the scouting reports. And then I'll take my own notes and then you go into a meeting and you can talk about different things. And then once the game starts, like when you're in that battle mode, you can go back into the dugout between innings and just completely go over what you're seeing. And that's where Gary and Higgy might say certain things that they're seeing and you have to adjust on the fly.
3: You mentioned the, uh, you know, issues that you'd, been having with two strikes putting guys away so beginning the season april may june uh your batting average against with two strikes was 235 and the mlb average is 167 but from july on it was 147 so went from you know well below average to well better than average uh how much of that is do you chalk up to you know uh, changing up the pitch mix like you talked about before or what, Tony? You, you always talk about uh, being in attack mode.
0: I think it's a little bit of everything. I, I definitely like the attack mode mindset. I started throwing my curveball harder, or at least like mentally, I was throwing it with more conviction. So I think that definitely helps me with two strikes. Um, even if it's a ball, like the ability to show a hitter that I'm willing to like rip this curveball in the dirt, get your eyes looking down. I think that helps me a lot. Um, but I think like for me, the pitch mix and the attack mode almost go hand in hand where like if I have a steady pitch mix going, I feel like I can stay in attack mode a lot easier. Whereas if I feel like I'm getting really predictable, if I'm I get like throwing fastballs up all the time, I feel like I have to be so perfect that that takes me out of attack mode. So if I, you know, if I've shown you a fastball up five times in a row, I feel like I have to start being more and more perfect because you're aware of it. So when I'm throwing like two seam and a slider for a strike and a curveball and a changeup and I'm going in and out and up and down, like you can just start sequencing everything together and just attacking the zone, which if you watch like, I mean, I have one of the best on my team to watch is like Garrett Cole and he's rolling like everything's just all over the zone. He's steady mixing. He's just always in attack. He's got that bulldog mentality. Like you watch a Max Scherzer. Like obviously, these guys are like the best of the best, but that attack mode comes with like the steady pitch mix and, and the sequencing and stuff.
1: It's well documented, Jameson, that you and and Garrett are are close friends. I mean, you you guys have kind of been together in a professional setting. I think since high A ball, you were spending time in the Florida State League in that Pirate system. What is one thing that you can tell us about Garrett Cole from all that time that you spent with him as a teammate? Stuff that you know, something that we you know, we don't know. We know that he's you know super c- competitive and you know, really likes to dive deep into some information, try and apply it back into his craft. We know, you know, some stuff off the field. He likes wine, obviously, He likes yep. a good meal, just like yourself. But like, what's that one thing that a lot of people don't know about Garrett?
0: Um, I'll give you a, ba- a baseball thing is just like, for me, even as a friend, it was eye-opening this year to see because we were together in Pittsburgh and he took a lot of control over his career and he was really invested in his career. But to see where he's at now... Um, you know, we didn't lose touch when he was with Houston, but I wasn't sharing a locker room and watching him work every day to see where he's at now with like, he's still after signing a big contract and getting the accolades and the awards like to see how curious he is with his career is still so interesting to me like he shows up every day trying to get better to hear him talk pitching to watch him play catch to watch him in the weight room, to see the initiative a guy like that takes over his career is pretty incredible um and then off the field I think his wife actually said it in their wedding vows at their wedding but Garrett's the type of guy like if he's cooking dinner even for himself like he's gonna marinate the meat properly like he's gonna pair it with a beautiful wine like he's gonna have a reduction sauce to go with it you know everyone might do that if they're cooking for a, a group and they want to impress but Garrett's the type of guy like if he's cooking for himself he's doing like a coffee dry rub on a steak even just if he's cooking for one and he's gonna pair it beautifully with the wine like that's the type of guy he is. He's super thrown in depth. Um, and that kind of goes into every, every aspect of his life.
2: That's It's great to hear, you know, cause you know, we don't have access to the clubhouse anymore. And, you know, I'm on the other side of the line. I'm part of the media now. Can, can you tell us the dynamic of that clubhouse, like the characters or the Yankee clubhouse? What, what is it like nowadays? Cause we, we just don't see it anymore. I mean, was it Gardner's or clubhouse yeah. jokester or who keeps oh, yeah. everybody loose?
0: Yeah. Um, it was cool for me to come over because coming from, you know, a smaller market NL central team, like the Yankees are a driving force of MLB and they get a lot of attention on the national spotlight. Um, so for me, like showing up to spring training, I was nervous. Like, how am I going to fit in with these superstars? How's it going to work? Um, but there's a reason a team like this has been a winning team for so long. Like there's definitely a culture in there. And the, the clubhouse is running a certain way uh, but the number one thing that I noticed when I came over was just like the work that guys were doing without being told to do the work. So like you show up and, you know, DJ LeMayhew and Glaber and Judge and John Giancarlo, like these guys are in the weight room doing their own program. Like they know exactly what they need to do every single day from day one of spring training. It's not when the lights are on. It's not a season thing. Like for me, not to say guys in Pittsburgh weren't working like that, but like there was just a different level of maturity and like ownership of guys' career here, I guess. So I don't know, to hear Judge talk about hitting or to talk about the pitcher they're facing that night, what he's looking for, like that stuff to me was all fascinating because I had never played with guys that were that advanced. Um, And then just like clubhouse culture-wise, you know, Judge definitely has a strong presence, strong voice, like he's huge. (laughs) He's, He's a great player, but he's also you know I think people respect his opinion a lot people look to him a lot in certain times when things aren't going well or when things are going well um, and then I think yeah definitely Gardy keeps it loose that was that was shocking to me uh, if I go to the bathroom on the airplane or anything I gotta come back and like inspect my drink or inspect my food and make sure it wasn't messed with uh, but same thing with him even like a guy who's been around so long and a guy that's one of the pinstripes for so long like when he does speak up um, you know people listen and people really respect him so um yeah just the clubhouse ran really really well a lot of close friends we had a lot of fun
1: I feel like for every new Yankee when they come into that first season Brett Gardner unless you're being told ahead of time Brett Gardner is probably one of the guys that you would least expect to be like that that guy who is pulling jokes and and those pranks all the time did you get a, a word ahead of time or did you kind of have to experience that firsthand?
0: I didn't get a word. Um, you know, in spring training, like, especially with COVID so much of our work was done individually or in little groups. Like I was around the pitchers a lot in spring training. I actually didn't even spend that much time with the position players. They even had it separated for a while. Like the position players were at the stadium, the pitchers were at the minor league complex. Um, so I really didn't even know a lot of these guys going into the season that well. Um so yeah I I didn't get a heads up or anything but I went up to him and I was like dude please don't mess with me <laughs> like I'm I'm just happy to be here uh he actually took it really easy on me but he had he had some funny ones um and he's not afraid to mess with anyone it doesn't matter how much time you have like he probably messes with the older guys more than he messes with like young guys and rookies which is funny
1: David do you think the the clubhouse culture that jameson is kind of touching on here with the Yankees do you, how how unique do you Believe that is because there is that pedigree with players that kind of pass down that understanding to guys that continue to come in.
2: Yeah, there are, there's always been a hierarchy and within a clubhouse. A leader's going of set the tone, and it, you know the whole the old saying is you you police yourselves. And a good manager will allow that dynamic to happen within the clubhouse. Handle things yourselves. You know, like like Jameson said, maybe it's Aaron Judge speaking up when you're in a losing streak or a winning streak. Keeping things level, but to me, it's just kind. You know, it's such a long season. The part I miss is just goofing around in the clubhouse. I mean, if I'm John Carlos Stanton, I'm walking around without my shirt on, flexing my pecs. You know, and looking at pitchers' bodies and making fun of them and going, "You're a professional athlete. Look at that body." You know, I mean, just little things like that. uh, You know, that that I really miss and that dynamic and really loosen up a clubhouse. And it's a long year. 162 games in 184 or 186 days, whatever it is. I mean. You know, this is uh, it's the old saying, when the season's over, you get to go, uh, you get to go make your own friends, you know, because you, you could bump some heads, it could be difficult at times. And that's why I asked Jamison that question about that clubhouse dynamic. And he's seen enough now after being in Pittsburgh and coming up through the system and then now, now with the Yankees. So his perspective, it, to me, really kind of rings true.
1: Jamison, we know that you are living in New York now seasonally. Do your spots change up? Like, do you have a favorite summer spot in New York? And, and has it changed when the weather drops a little bit? Or the temperature drops, I should say? Uh,
0: it's true. That's a tricky question because, in you know, in season, it's kind of hard. Like, if we get an off day, I might be, you know, going out to dinner on a Monday night in the summer or whatever, whereas in the off season, kind of how he said, like, you can pick your friends in the off season, like in the off season, you can pick your schedule a little easier, go out to more dinners, have a little more fun. Um, but I've definitely learned like my local coffee shops, dinner spots. We've kind of got like a rotation of, of places we frequent while still trying to like branch out, experience more. I've tried to go over to Brooklyn a couple of times for dinner and I'm trying to just kind of broaden my horizons and try different things and find new spots and stuff. But, um, you know, the off season definitely has helped me become more comfortable with the subway system. Uh, I'm getting around pretty well. I'm seeing things. I'm getting my steps in now that I can walk. Um, so I'm just taking it all in and and really enjoying
1: it. You just mentioned taking your steps in being able to walk brings me back to the rehab. I know you said the lockout hasn't really changed your rehab much. So other than just not going to Yankee stadium and doing the rehab at, at hospital for special surgery, what, what did you and the Yankees do maybe before the lockout to ensure that nothing would be thrown off kilter?
0: Yeah. so. I mean, the, the staff with the Yankees, strength and medical, did a really great job just to lay out my rehab plan. Um, so I'm not in contact with anyone, but my PT at HSS can be in contact with the Yankees. So he's sending them video updates of the work I'm doing, the throwing, the squats, the calf raises, whatever, you know, whatever new thing we're taking on. He's making sure that that gets communicated with the team. Um, so, you know, that part of it is still nice that they're involved in that way. Um, but you know, just the continuity of care, like the Yankees were with me right after surgery. Um, and you know, I think from the PT side of life there, they were looking forward to kind of being in control of the whole rehab to see it through all the way. Obviously that didn't happen, but they laid out uh, progression. They laid out what a throwing program should look like. They laid out what my workouts would look like for months. They advanced my workouts based on where I'd be at in my rehab, um, So, you know, I've got it all on my phone. I can pull up an app and say, here's what, you know, our strength coach Brett and Cressy wrote down for me for this week. Here's what I need to do. Um, So, I I mean, I gotta be honest. I think the lockout actually put a lot more on the staff's plate because they had to pretty much account for who knows months and months of work and, and uh, you know, progressions and stuff, not just for rehab guys, but for healthy guys too. You're not able to do the, fly in and, and check up visits on guys and stuff. So you have to write the, the workout program months in advance without ever actually seeing or talking to these guys. So, I mean, kudos to the staff for putting in all that work in such a short amount of time. Um, you know, I'm obviously in great hands, um, but it definitely would be nice to be able to talk to the pitching coaches and talk to the PTs and strength coaches.
2: As far as the lockout goes, um, do you feel like, you know, you, things are communicating to you very well or as a team or the team rep? Obviously, uh, you're well represented. Obviously, Zach Britton's on the executive subcommittee. Uh, what do you feel like the issues are? I mean, is the control issues that are the, that, uh, you know, whether it's arbitration or service time manipulation or luxury tax? What, what What's on the inside that you're hearing and how solid do you feel like the players are right now?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we actually, we have Britain on the executive subcommittee. We have Garrett on the subcommittee too. And then I was a player rep in Pittsburgh. So I've been pretty involved. Um, there's definitely some economic issues that, that players want to get done. I I think, you know, the, the luxury tax threshold, something, I think player control service time manipulation, I think the really big one for players. And I think you'll hear, hear about it a lot out of players. mouths. Is just increasing competition league wide. Like how can we push, a lower budget or lower market team to go get a mid to top tier free agent? How can we get, you know, I I saw Kansas city go get like a Carlos Santana last year, which I loved, like you're getting a middle of the order bat. um, Even if you might not expect to make the playoffs this year, but you're adding a competitive player who, you know, fans might enjoy watching and, you know, coming from an organization like Pittsburgh, like it was different for me, being in New York where it's like, we make trades at the deadline and we're involved in all these free agent rumors with Pittsburgh. It was like, it's just us guys, like we're not going and signing anyone. We're not going to really acquire anyone. Um, so how can, how can we as players and, and MLBPA push these teams to or incentivize them even to go sign a mid to top tier free agent? Um, so I think competition's definitely up there, tanking. I mean, I could go on for a while, but uh, hopefully, hopefully the, the dialogue and negotiations pick back up soon because obviously spring training is approaching here soon.
1: Do you miss not serving on, on the committee to represent your team with the Players Association?
0: So I'm actually still technically our player rep just because Garrett and Britain are subcommittee, but okay. they, they do the relaying of information to the players and stuff. Uh, but I do get to be involved on these calls whenever they do happen, and I'm on all the, the bargaining sessions and the Zoom calls and stuff, which is definitely neat for me. Um, but last year, even like with the COVID issue last year where it was tough to get the the season going um, it's a lot of responsibility and I know like I'm on some calls but then you get like Garrett and Britton they're committing a lot of their time and you know those are guys with kids and families and stuff so I know it's a lot of extra work and stuff on their plate um, but definitely grateful an organization like New York where so many players are involved and interested in what's going on league-wide uh, that's been refreshing
1: I don't think a lot of fans take that into consideration when you think about the responsibilities on, on the executive subcommittee level, guys, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, Zach and Garrett, David, when you were playing, same thing you got, you know, you have to juggle competing your family time, time with children, obviously. So it's a lot there and, and fans for the most part, probably don't think about that. Uh, Jameson. All right. Final question here before we let you go, and you're going to kind of be our guinea pig here on, on toe in the slab. We are trying something a little new, we want to, like, connect the baseball community as much as we can here on this podcast. So okay. for every guest that comes on the podcast, we want to end it by giving that guest the chance to ask something to an upcoming guest of the podcast. So how this oh, works. Interesting. Yeah. We're going to tell you the name of a guest that is either scheduled or confirmed to come on this show in the very near future and okay. you will you'll have to quickly come up with a question ask them so we'll, we'll save that question we'll relay it to them when they appear on the podcast so uh, i mean hey no hard count maybe 10 15 seconds but is that, is that cool with you yeah brilliant. all right so one of our upcoming guests this is a guy who's a former cyung award winner he is a world series mvp and a three-time All-Star. He's also one of the broadcasting voices for the LA Dodgers, and that's right-hander Oral Hershizer. So, Jameson, oh. if you could ask Oral Hershizer anything that you want, what's it going to be?
0: Oh, man. that's That's a good one. You know what? I think a guy with as much playoff experience as he has, and I'm a guy who has never pitched in the playoffs, I would just be curious what his preparation was like pitching into October. And if he was on a team that he knew was going to make it into October, would that switch up his routine at all? Um, Towards the end of the year, would he crush it harder in the weight room? Would he taper back a little bit in the weight room or, you know, throw more or less towards the end of the year and then just pitch to pitch pitching in the playoffs. Um, Is there anything you did differently to perform in big situations um, deep in October? Awesome. It's interesting for me, pitching in game 162 last year, that wasn't a playoff game, but it almost made me a little more aware as to where to miss to certain hitters, because I knew the bullpen was backing me up that day. So in the playoffs, you see a lot of these teams go to the bullpen really quickly. And I think as a starter, your biggest job is just to put up zeros at that point. It doesn't matter how deep you go, you need to put up zeros. The goal is to, to give up less runs than the other teams. So for me in that game 162, I was thinking like, okay, I'm Throwing a fastball down and away, my miss is down and away. My miss is not anywhere over the plate. So I just think maybe if you could touch on that with him about maybe if he had any thoughts like that deep in the, deep in the playoffs where every pitch was so magnified.
2: Great question. So true, too. I mean, it, there is something. I mean, there's like a light bulb. There's a light switch that goes on. I mean, every pitch is so scrutinized. And if you think about 1988, the year Oral Hershiser Won the MVP and was the World Series MVP, and he pitched six straight shutouts at the end of the season. The last start of the season was a ten inning shutout to break Don Drysdale's fifty six uh, inning scoreless streak that he still holds to today. So think about that: six straight shutouts to end the season to go into the playoffs, and the
0: last one was ten innings. Riding your horse right there, woof! <laughs> That's some big boy stuff,
1: Jamison. This is awesome. Thank you so much for for joining us here and. Best of luck with the rest of your rehab. We hope to uh, see more updates from your Instagram story account along the way and uh, enjoy the rest of the offseason, man. You got it. Thanks
0: for having me, guys. And, Kony, congrats on Sunday Night Baseball. That's an exciting gig. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again for having us. Big fan of your work, man. Good luck going forward. All right. Talk to you guys later.
1: David, when Jameson was talking about stealing strike, Mullen, I thought about you because – So many times when I was watching you growing up, it was one of the first thoughts that I kind of had to myself about pitching It was one of the easier things to pick up watching someone pitch with the naked eye trying to learn you did a great job with some of those backdoor pitches in stealing strike one so what's it like hearing a younger (laughs) pitcher in today's game talk about stealing those strikes.
2: It shows me an adaptability that, uh, and a pitching IQ that Jamison Tyone possesses because it, this is where the rubber meets the road between the new school analytics and the craft of pitching. Now, the new school analytics was telling him your high speed rate, your high spin rate on your four-seamer, you need to use that pitch more. But the problem is the more you use it, the more the hitters get familiar with it and the less mystery that's involved in, in, in your pitch sequencing. And that's the best weapon a pitcher has is mystery not knowing what pitch is coming, keeping the hitter, just, just that seed of doubt in a hitter's mind. And, you know, we talk about, and he talked about, you know, bottoming out in that Philadelphia start uh, where he got knocked out in the first inning and it was just all four seamers and sliders. And he kind of lost the feel for his curveball, didn't throw any two seamers, very rarely a changeup. From that moment on, he became a different pitcher. He still had that four seam fastball up in the zone, but he saved it. And he started throwing two seamers, a la Chris Bassett, Another guy on our, our podcast that we had last week that, that has great elite pitch design and doesn't have elite spin rate or really elite stuff, probably average velocity at best. And so, so to me, that was the key, the two seamer in the different spin and then the four seamer off of that and then the curveball on top of home plate. I used to make a living on throwing curveballs on top of home plate and I didn't leave the bullpen in my warmups before a game unless I could bounce a curveball on top of home plate and know that's in my hit pocket. Uh, so yeah, he started doing more of that with two strikes and, you know, James, Smythe showed us the numbers, told us about the numbers with two strikes, how much improvement he had. That's a direct result of being more unpredictable of throwing more two seamers, more change-ups, more curveballs, and saving and protecting his best pitch that high four seam fastball. You know, sometimes your best pitch needs protection. If you have the best slider in the league or the best splitter in the league, if you keep throwing it over and over again not only will the efficacy of that pitch kind of wane over, over, over the course of the game, but the predictability of it will make it less effective. So you need to protect your best pitch. And the best way to do that is to mix it up with other looks and save that for when you really need it as a put away pitch. And I think that's what Jameson figured out from his evolution of a two seam pitcher in Pittsburgh to a four seam pitcher and a shorter arm swing with the Yankees to kind of a hybrid between the Pittsburgh pitcher and and the Yankee pitcher of the first half and he really found gold in my mind now the question is only help get that ankle healthy and now he knows what to do he's, he's got a form that can work
1: and I'll tell you this that rings so true because when Jameson talked after that start against the Phillies and and that was a you know it, it was a start you want to forget as a starting pitcher but he literally said I need to offer more variety to my opponents moving forward and a lot of people would say why would you admit that why would you come out and say that if you have the stuff right if you have those pitches doesn't matter if you said it or not and that's a prime example
2: it is a prime example and the thing is is that nowadays and 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 James Smythe knows this we both fall along on baseball savant we We know what your pitch count is. I mean, every pitch you throw, we have documented now. We can tell you in real time the spin rate, the movement, what type of pitch he's throwing, and everybody has that information now. Uh, You can get it uh, anytime you want it. Just log on to any game you want on Baseball Savant. You can follow each pitch, and and you can tell the mix of the pitches. You you can tell just about anything you want about any pitch that's thrown. Uh, There's no mystery anymore. So certainly uh, for him to come out and confidently say, you know what, I needed to mix it up more, and I did. That only enhanced everything for him. It gave him confidence. All the reporters were asking those questions anyway, because we know it wasn't like 1980 where, you know, what pitch did you throw or what pitch did you rely on? We know already, we know what you threw. We know the exact breakdown of the pitches you threw throughout the course of that game. So, you know, I, I admire that confidence and that direct uh, answer, the honesty of it. I think it served him well. And it, planted that seed of mystery back in the hitters minds when they faced Jamison Tyone like oh watch out the scouting report's different than it was in the first half
3: yeah he didn't he didn't have to hide anything because it becomes evident right away the batters if you change things up people are going to learn pretty quickly and even when we when we would cover his starts right out of that we would track it in real time I mean we would put you know we would mention it on the air have graphics on the screen his four seam usage is going down his two seam usage is going up his He's throwing the changeup more. He's mixing things up better. And we can
2: track that in real time during games now. Yeah. For a right-handed pitcher against left-handed batters in today's game with the shift, almost every left-handed batter is being shifted defensively. If you don't have a good changeup in your arsenal, then you're missing out because that's a design to hit right into the shift. You just throw a nice little change up down and away soft, get the left-handed batter just to slightly roll over it, get it on the ground. You've got three defenders over there hitting right to the the heart of the shift. That's a weapon you got to have in your arsenal. If you're a right-handed pitcher against a left-handed And
1: Jamison Tyone from a league wide perspective, if you're trying to keep an eye on a guy who could kind of fly under the radar for a pitching staff in 2022, that could be a guy that you want to keep an eye on for sure. As he tries to take another big step forward in, in year two with the New York Yankees. All right, James, this week in pitching history, what do you have?
3: All right. Um, so we have a few Hall of Fame pitchers getting elected uh, on this date, you know, during this week. Awan Marichal, Whitey Ford, Steve Carlton, Bob Gibson, Catfish Hunter. But we're, we're going to go way back. No, we're, we're going to go way, way back. We're going to go back to January 11th, 1881. So that is going to be 141 years ago. On Tuesday, the day this drops. Uh, the first of a series of games on ice is played in Chicago using professional and amateur players. Now, I get a lot of these little uh, this, this week and this date in baseball tidbits from baseball reference. I, I, and then I go down the rabbit hole from there. So I started a little digging. And it turns out that these ice baseball games were really common in the 19th century, going back into the 1860s. And uh, one New York Times story from 1883, covered a game in Brooklyn and called it a decided improvement over the former contests of this kind. So I wasn't sure if they meant a decided improvement over other ice baseball games, or if that was an improvement on baseball in general, and that this was a better way to play.
2: Wow, I'm blown away by that. That's just just a new one all the way together. I mean, sliding around on on skates, on spikes, on shoes, whatever. So they're, they're wearing
3: yeah. skates. They're wearing skates, and they're they're
2: going wow. on the Wow! Amazing, amazing. Okay. Maybe can that you back. ice skate? We might have to bring that back. Yeah.
1: <laughs> can you ice skate?
2: David? I have ne- never ice skated. Well, one time I've been on ice in my life. Yeah, I never, never really learned how to ice skate. All
1: right. Yeah, I I don't know how many players would spring into action if you know the huh. uh, <laughs> the the Bill Vex of the world came into the clubhouse and say, fellas, we're going to try something new tonight and uh, grab your skates. They're all sharpened. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what's like one gimmick, David, that you kind of think of in, in baseball history that you would have been totally comfortable with through the years. Like I remember the white sock players wearing shorts one day they're during, they're you know, I don't think it was one day, but like, you know, at one time in their history, the seventies, the eighties, they were wearing shorts Something like this. What's something that you would be comfortable but sounded pretty outrageous?
2: Well, a couple of things. You gotta go back to Bill Vack, you know, and the Chicago White Sox. One of, the, one of the you know, him and Charlie Finley, they can write just novels about the, their ideas and their, their antics over the years. But Harry Carey with the shirt off, broadcasting from the bleachers, drinking a Budweiser is something I would definitely like to try one time. And then also it was sort of uh, the fans, he had the signs. Take the picture, take them, leave them in, take them out, and the fans could vote. You know, where you had the sign, right? Take them out, leave them in. And, you know, that, that's pretty interesting. You want to get fan involvement into the game? Hey, you know, uh, you could pick out a few games, even if it was an exhibition game. You could have the, yeah, you, know, you talk about fan involvement. That, he knew what he was doing. I mean, he was perceived as being kind of crazy, but he was a crazy genius in, in some ways.
1: That's that like the baseball. Go ahead, David.
3: that was grandstand manager night uh, for the St. Louis <laughs> Browns. And, I think that's something that could work today, especially now with phones, you can punch in the things on your phone instead of having the fans hold up little placards and and tallying it up, you know, uh, hit and run now buns, and uh, he had uh, the manager uh, sitting in a rocking chair on top of the dugout for the whole game.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That is like modern day baseball gladiator. Like is he is he in or not?
0: Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) Thumbs down.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. Three up, three down. The way we close the show, we each give one storyline around baseball that deserves a little attention, a little extra attention, we should say. But we have a couple here this week, James, that I know deserves a lot of attention. And let me start here with something happening in Australia back on Friday night. Genevieve Beacom. Remember the name, people. She's a left-hander for the Melbourne Aces of the Australian League, and she became the first female professional baseball player in Australia. She tossed a scoreless inning of relief last week, and she's 17 years old, I and mean, this isn't someone who's you know in their 30s, and it's also not a gimmick at all. 17 years of age, the, the, the scouting report that her fastball sits in the, the low to mid 80s. She has a big curveball. A changeup as well, and we kind of have a connection to Genevieve Beacom. Peter Moylan of Farm to Fame Fame is her manager with the Melbourne Aces. He signed her to a development contract with the Aces. Again, seventeen years of age. This is a very high level of baseball. There have been twenty-one current or former big leaguers who have played for the Melbourne Aces. So, if she stays on this trajectory here, I'm wondering. And, and she said she has interest in coming to the United States, but what do you think would prevent her from coming to the U.S. and pitching at a D1 college baseball program?
2: Nothing, I don't think. You know, I, the, the most important thing that we've heard here, and Peter Boylan, we love Peter Boylan, part of the John Boyle family. I Man, What a sharp guy. I really love listening to him. Um, this isn't a token. She earned her way we watch that any pitch, she had a pretty good hook. I mean, she may not blow you away with high velocity, but she's in the mid-80s, low 80s, which is remarkable for any young left-hander at 17 years old. And she's got the pitches to go with it. So this, this wasn't a, a, a gimmick. This wasn't, you know, uh, to get press or, you know, some sort of stunt. She earned her way there. She's serious. And if you watch her throw, her mechanics look pretty good. Her arm actually looked pretty good. So, you know, more power to her. Like, go ahead, you know, and – you, you perform, you deserve the chance. And, uh, you know, I, I applaud Peter Morton for the way he described it, the what he does over there to provide those opportunities. And, you know, Bravo, Bravo to her, Bravo to Peter. Moore.
1: This is also a league that we mentioned, you know, t- 21 current or former big leaguers have come through just for the Melbourne aces. This is a high level. And I was looking at the team's website right now. Delman Young is an active player on the Melbourne Aces <laughs> roster. So you, you have Bigley Claver right now going on with the Aces. Uh, I know Ronald Acuna Jr. had a, a stint in the Australian Baseball League as well. So there is competition there is, is what I'm, you know, I guess I'm trying to say here. And also, James, the person who's kind of like the next topic in three up, three down. She also has experience in the Australian Baseball League as an instructor.
3: Right, and uh, so another uh, great trailblazer story uh, coming in this, this weekend. Rachel Balkovec in the Yankees organization hired to be the manager of the Tampa Tarpons, becoming the first woman to be a manager in the minor leagues. Really cool story. And she has been such a big part of in the in the Cardinals organization she's bounced around in the minor leagues she's been in the Yankee system now and she's getting the promotion to manage the the club really cool story
2: yeah if I can piggyback on that I guess the common denominator between these two remarkable uh, young ladies is that they've earned their way you know and the first thing that Maybe, uh, you know, some, some Neanderthal thinkers might, might say is, uh, oh, it's a token. They're just doing it for the PR. Uh-uh. It's not the case. If you talk to Kyle Bodie, who was the director uh, at Driveline Baseball, where Rachel worked with him, he raves about her. He said she made an immeasurable difference because her technical skills kind of revamped the technical side of their operations, which a lot of major league teams are using or incorporating the Driveline concept of whether it's training whether it's biomechanics, everything analytical that they do out there, a lot of their, their, uh, their methods have been implemented on major league teams. Uh, Sam Green is a guy for the Yankees that worked at driveline that they hired. Rachel made an exceptional contribution to driveline in general, kind of revamped some of the technical side of the business. She's earned her way. This is not a token. She, she deserves it. She'll do well. She's already worked with some of those minor leaguers already. In the Yankee system, they respect her. They know she knows her stuff. She's, she's good. She's going to help them. She's going to help develop the minor league talent. And the Yankees are not going to mess around with their minor league system. They're not going to put her in that position unless they think she can really contribute. So congratulations to Rachel. Congratulations to Brian Cashel for making that move at the Yankees organization for leading the way.
1: 100%. Rachel, I mean, just for an example, Rachel's really been with Jason Dominguez the entirety of his time, in the Yankees organization because she worked uh, in, in, you know, the Dominican league. She knows a lot of the players that come to Florida and, you know, the, the Latin players that come to Florida and, and start to get their feet wet playing here stateside. Look, if you have any doubts, pump the brakes because w- her and I were the same age and man, like she is bilingual. Okay. She has a handful of degrees. On just the, you know, I, I know, she, her, you know, a lot of her studies have just been in uh, concentrating the movement of the human body and uh, just a lot of impressive work that she's done. She obviously knows her stuff as a, as a former softball player. She's put the time in over the years in, in the Cardinals organization. Now with the Yankees organization, she's going to have a lot of talent on her minor league roster as well to start up. So I, I, I again, I commend David, like you said, I commend the Yankees organization for, Trusting her, putting her in this spot, it's uh, a lot of responsibility, but she has surely earned it here as we uh, look forward to the 2022 minor league season. Definitely one of the, the bigger storylines, I think, that not too many people are going to think of right off the bat, but you got to pay attention here because someone like Rachel, she's earned all, everything that, sh- that has been given to her and she's on the rise, man. So she's very impressive. Keep an eye on on Rachel.
2: You know, the, day, the days of, you know, uh, it's kind of another chip away at the good old boys network. Mm-hmm. The days of, you know, uh, having six scotches in a hotel bar and making decisions on an organization on who's hired, who's fired, who to trade for. Those days are over and that's progress. You know, that's a good, good thing. Uh, you know, I'm an expansion league baseball player. I think experience is important, but you don't have to have had to play in the big leagues. You, you could never play baseball or play in the big leagues to develop a skill set technical skill set that you can make a difference in this game, whether you're in a front office, coaching staff, training staff, anybody in anything, the information is out there. Public information is out there. James Smythe go over it every game before every game, all that information, you know, you can go down any rabbit hole you want on fan grass, on baseball savant, baseball reference. There's so many great websites, so many great writers out there who never played the game that, that, that have more expertise than some guys who even did play the game who do have major league experience. So, you know, that's, that's the way of the world now and it, it's progress and uh, it, it's making the game better
1: in my mind. It's also, so like you said, follows the trend with the Yankees. I mean, they hired Kim Ang back in the day. They, they've obviously hired Gene Afterman. They, they've hired Rachel here. And uh, again, first manager, a female manager in the minor league, something to keep an eye on here in 2022. Guys, this week was great. soon was wonderful. Coney, again, congrats on your new assignment. We, uh, we're certainly going to miss seeing you every single day at Yankee Stadium, but you're still going to be there, obviously, and just bigger, brighter things ahead here in 2022 for you at ESPN. Thanks, fellas. Much appreciated. Thanks again to Jameson and for joining us here this week. We appreciate the Yankee right-hander taking some time from his offseason. Dan Work, our fantastic producer, always doing a top-notch job getting everything done here on toe in the slab pitching with david Cohn. it is a production of john boy media we will talk to you next week everybody take care